If you'll take your Bible, we'll turn to Exodus chapter 2 this morning. Exodus 2, I'm going to read the very last verse of Exodus 1. We're continuing our study in the book of Exodus. Uh, Last week you'll remember that we saw in chapter 1 that acts of oppression against God's people always fail. And we, we traced the promises that were recorded in Genesis. And we saw that Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 is evidence of God's faithfulness. God's people were fruitful and they multiplied. And then we saw that Pharaoh turned up the heat on God's people and God made it so that his purpose failed. And then we saw two Hebrew midwives who chose to trust the Lord instead of fearing the king. And they were blessed by God for their faith. Today, we come back and we find Pharaoh again in fear and desperation. And from that fear, he decides to institute a new policy to kill every boy baby. And then into that culture of death... The Lord God brings forth a baby, a baby who will deliver his people out of bondage. Let's begin with Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Here's God's word. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to, the, to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him up. I drew him out of the water. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a passage like this, we recognize that You have put this as a marker in the text, and you've made many other such markers throughout the Scripture. And so we pray today that you would give us the eyes to see what your Word says. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to see you and know you. God, give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to your church. And I ask you to use a man with feet of clay, like me, to proclaim this good news of Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The Nazis spoke of a life unworthy of life. And then under that philosophy, they devised the final solution. It was a death sentence for every person who lived in a place that the Nazis invaded. The Chinese government in the late 1970s, all the way to 2016, operated under a policy called One Family, One Child 
So it was a death sentence for every child after number one born into those families. And then as if to make anyone feel as if they were less brutal than they had previously been, the Chinese government allowed some families in some contexts, mostly rural, to have two children, which means it's only a death sentence for numbers three and beyond. In ancient Greece, children born with birth defects were put out and discarded in trash heaps outside the cities. Born under a death sentence, it was the Christians who went out and and with compassion for God's creation, brought those children back from the edge of town and sought to nurse those precious lives to health. It doesn't matter when you find it or where you find it. A culture of death is always the work of Satan, and it's always the result of sin. Now, in John chapter 10, Jesus describes the enemy, the evil one, as the one who comes to kill and steal and destroy. Exodus 1.22 is just one of those many places, many times when God's little creation beings are born under a death sentence. But is it only a physical danger? Well, the Bible says it's a spiritual danger as well. Because apart from God's grace... All of humanity is not only born under sin, but condemned to spiritual death because of your actual transgressions against God. Now, when you read chapter 2, you're meant to feel the weight of this death sentence. And you are meant to see that without grace through faith, there really is no hope. But God says, I'm going to deliver my people for my own glory. And so this passage teaches us, though born under a death sentence, God delivers his people. Now, how does God deliver his people? Well, he brings victory. And and all of chapter 2 is meant for you to go, victory. God wins over evil, and he wins through providence, and he wins in Christ. Those are our points today. So first, God brings victory over evil. This particular Pharaoh is threatened by Hebrew men. And so in his effort to break them, he he institutes slavery and that fails. And then he decides to make the slavery even harder and then that fails. And then his effort to, to quietly create a plot with these midwives, that also fails. So then what is done in secret suddenly becomes public and hate and Pharaoh commands genocide. Verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people... Every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. It's humorous when you study secular scholars on the book of Exodus because the the critique is often made, well, you know, we don't find this account anywhere outside the Bible. Of course, that suggestion is laughable. And it's laughable because no ancient civilization ever tells you the story of their own destruction. They never tell you the stories of their own failures, about the the time that they got humiliated by an unknown God, the one who, who governed our slaves when they rose up and they crushed us. Such a document doesn't exist except from the side of the victor. 
And so the theme of this text is victory. From verses 22 through verse 4, God makes a a declaration. He says, when evil oppresses my people, I'll deliver them. And it doesn't matter if it comes against you from the outside or within you. I will save my people. So first God shows this victory over evil. Like, Like when the threat comes from the outside. The edict was simple enough. If it's a male child, you throw him in the river. This is an evil man. And then the story is told in such a way that you are meant to feel the weight of it. What would it feel like to be a a slave in Goshen? What would it feel like to marry under such an evil regime? What would it feel like to give birth to a little baby boy knowing that the law demands that you put him to death? And if you don't, someone else will. Look at verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now we later find out that dad's name is Amran, or Amran, and mother is Jochebed. These two marry and they give birth. But more than that, they they chose to keep the child. He was beautiful in their eyes. They could not comprehend the thought of defying God and throwing him in the river. Sometimes evil comes from the outside against you. A king, a ruler, who rises up and believes that he is God, and he despises the thought that some who are under his subjection will not bow the knee and give allegiance to him. It's been repeated throughout history. And it happens even when it's not the most egregious names, even when it's not Pharaoh or Herod or Hitler, or Mao, or Stalin. And it happens again and again because this is the nature of sinful men, whether they're appointed, or whether they're elected, or whether they're brought to power by force. Mankind desires to be the king, desires to rule over other men and and rule in place of the true God. From Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, that danger of the human heart has not changed a want to displace God from His throne. And so it happens that a, that a world leader arises and he brings evil and oppression over God's people. Sometimes evil really does come from the outside. Perhaps some of you live with that kind of fear even in the back of your minds. What if that happened here? Or your mind wanders to worst case scenarios. What if my... My government oppresses me. What if the government begins to oppress my children and my, and my grandchildren? A passage like this says, well, you can be certain if that happens that God sees. And He will use it for the good of His people. He will even use it for His own glory. But you must know today that God will not give you the grace to handle the worst case scenarios of your imaginings. But He is faithful to give to you and to your children the grace to handle whatever evil comes your way from the outside in the very moment that you need it. Hebrews 4.16 says, Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. When? In the time of need. God's trustworthy. Even when all that you see around you is evil, 
the Lord delivers his people over evil that's pointed against you, but he also delivers you from the evil that is right within you. You notice, don't you, that the edict was intended to be committed against God's people, but it was also intended to be committed by God's people. Pharaoh issues the order, verse 22 says, to all his people. And so Stephen the martyr, the very first martyr of the Christian church, recounts this story in Acts chapter 7, verse 19. He says, our fathers were forced to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. I mean, it wasn't in this case just evil from the outside. The danger came from within as well. The account is actually lit with tension. If God's going to bring victory over evil, then he must defeat fears. He must defeat temptations. He must defeat a lack of faith, the kind of which is all inherent within each of us. God must bring victory over these parents' hearts. I mean, given the circumstances, friends, there are multiple opportunities for Amran and Jochebed to just cave, just to give in to the order, the tension. How do you keep a baby quiet for three months? Babies cry. Were there moments in the midst of that that there was panic and and would it seem easier just to end the life of the child? And in that kind of tension, you wonder from a distance, did they ever reach the point that they were so desperate, so doubting of their own faith, that they were fearful that they might themselves cave and crumble? At some level, you'd be afraid, wouldn't you? Would my faith cave? Would I crumble in that moment when someone knocked on the door? If you've been around church for a while, you've heard people say that that the attacks that you are prone to receive come from three places, three spheres, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That concept is actually drawn from Ephesians chapter 2. And I wonder how many of you believe that the greatest fear that you face, the greatest fear from which God must deliver you comes from the outside. From that evil world. And then from the devil. Many parents parent as if those are really the only real dangers. But the Bible says it's not really the evil out there that you need to watch out for. There's also evil in here. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. God brings victory in Exodus 2 over the evil that comes from the outside, but also the evil within you. God brings the victory, but he calls mom and dad and he calls you and me to cooperate with his spirit. How does God deliver you from evil? By faith. If you understand the message that was read in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning about this little precious couple in Egypt, you recognize faith is not some sort of internal strength that they were just born with. It's a gift of God. 
Whereby this couple can rest in God's sovereignty. They can rest in His power. Look at verse 3. When she could hide Him no longer, she took Him in a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Reeds that are pulled from the river and woven together to make a basket and the mother covered the basket to make sure that it was watertight. And the text wants to point you to her tenderness as she, as she places the baby in the basket. And then she placed the basket in the water. And then she releases her son to the hand of God, a floating vessel across. And here we encounter a word that we haven't seen since the book of Genesis. Because the word for basket is the same word as ark. The message Where others drowns, God saves this one. By grace, through faith, like Noah, this man who found favor in the eyes of God is is going to be used of God to bring salvation to others. As Noah was called to believe upon the Lord in this floating box, Jochebed and Amran must open their hands and they must trust the Lord with their baby. You remember Noah's story, don't you? Where it tells us that water can be a place of deliverance or it can be a place of destruction. And so for Noah and three-month-old baby Moses, it is deliverance by faith. The same is offered to you through Christ. Deliverance by faith or destruction. For a failure to believe upon the Lord. In Noah's day, some failed to believe what he was doing with that dumb big box on the edge of town. In Moses' day, there's going to be armies that come from Pharaoh who refuse to believe the salvation which is being offered to these people. So one writer said both Noah and Moses passed through the deadly waters by riding in an ark. A vessel of salvation. In fact, they were baptized into the same waters in which some perished. Though born under a death sentence, God delivers His people over evil, but also through providence. Now in verse 5 through 9, you notice the details, you notice the expectation, and you notice the glory. And so I want to show you the details first. Who are the main characters when you read this story? Pharaoh. Mom, dad, sister, Pharaoh's daughter. Well, all those are present in the story, but God is the main character. He is the only one who could, through kind providence, superintend every detail on the pages of this text. God's sister, I mean, excuse me, Moses' sister is hiding over at a distance and you and I are given the privilege of watching God's hand at work through her eyes. Look at verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said... This is one of the Hebrews' children. In a river that's floating with with currents and and crocodiles. 
God causes this little man-made ark to float over in the shallow water and remain stuck in the reeds. And the daughter of the man who brought the death sentence happens to head down to the water at just the right time to take a quick bath. She happens to see the basket. And then the story slows down so that you witness exactly what Moses' sister saw. A girl who should follow her dad's orders is suddenly moved to compassion. And then she opens the basket. And then to make certain that you do not miss the providence of God in every detail, the exact same language is used here that was used to describe the birth mother. Verse 1, Jochebed saw. Verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter saw. Verse 3, Jochebed took the baby. Verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter took the basket. And then she took pity. The business analogy is this. The devil is in the details. Most people attribute that particular quote to a German architect. A very slight study will show you that it's a misattribution to this German architect. In fact, it's a misquote of the actual German proverb. Let me say this, most of us believe that the devil really is in the details. God is somewhere high above. He's far away. He knows everything, but the devil is the one who's down here at ground level. The proverb actually says God is in the details. And that's what Exodus chapter 2 says. God says, look, I'm the God of the details. I'm the God who's at water level, right where the currents and the crocodiles float. Some of you need to be reminded of that today. You're in places in your life where you want to believe God. You want to open your hands. You want to entrust Him and release the basket into His care. But all the details... They're just so complicated. They're so entangled and the Nile is big in front of you and the crocodiles are circling. This is where God is. And God says, you can trust me. The devil's not in the details. I'm the God of the details. Now let's look at the expectations. You suspect in mom and dad's mind under best case scenario... That they would hope to release this child and some Egyptian, any Egyptian, would would just get the child out of the water and raise the child and then the boy doesn't have to die. But the testimony of these verses is that God doesn't usually give you what you expect. He gives you better than you'd expect. But not in a prosperity gospel kind of way, not in a health and wealth gospel sense. Take a look at verse 7. Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And now the third time we get to see that word again, someone 
took the baby. But this time it's not in fear, and this time there's no wondering about the providence of God. So the woman took the child and she nursed him. If you're a believer, you know this in principle. You know this in concept, but sometimes it's really hard to see the Lord in the midst of everyday life, in the midst of any and every circumstance. But this particular passage says that God always gives you better than you'd expect. And Reformed Christians like to quote Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to To his purpose, does that mean if I'm standing here holding a box of nuts and bolts and I pray, then God will suddenly give me a brand new car? It didn't mean that at all. But it does mean that when you look at your trials and you hold your sorrows and your pain and even those events that seem to overwhelm you in the moment, in his love, God always brings those circumstances together. For your ultimate good and for his own glory. A God who brings victory through unseen providence in every single detail with the kind of abundance that you could not expect. I suspect you've known seasons of disappointment. I bet you've experienced circumstances that felt to you like they were completely futile. And you've stared into heaven. And you've wondered, God... What are you doing? How could you possibly bring anything good out of this? And he always does. He always does in such a way that only he gets the glory. It's a story about God's victory. It's a murderous plot that that sends Joseph down to Egypt. And it didn't look like a victory. It's a famine that takes Joseph's family down into Egypt and it didn't really look like a victory. It's slavery that causes Joseph's descendants to be separated into a special tribe and it didn't look like a victory. It's slavery that causes them to be so desperate that they cry out to God and in the moment it didn't look like a victory. It's the king's order that causes and creates a hopeless situation of dead male children in Goshen, and it didn't look like a victory. And then it was a woven basket floating in the river. And then it was a timely question that just didn't seem that impressive. Hey, let me get somebody to take care of the baby. And all of these events that seem so painful and so scary and maybe even irrelevant in God's hands... They're used for his glory and for his children's good. And so these are either profound accidents or God is the main character of the story. And this is the God who takes the child from the bulrushes and returns them back safely to the mother's arms. And oh, by the way, we'd like to pay you to take care of your own baby. It's ridiculous. Amran and Jochebed could not have sent an envoy with treasures of the entire world and ambassadors to represent their cause and negotiate a treaty better than God who gets the glory 
in ways that you'd never expect. Don't be surprised at all if that's the way he decides to work in your own life. And don't be surprised if that's the way he decides to work in the life of this church as well. Providence in every detail, better than we could possibly expect, so that only he gets the glory. Parents, Moses was taught about Yahweh from the time that he was crying in the basket to the time that he was maybe at most three years old. And then the rest of the days he spent in Pharaoh's house. I do not want you to, for a moment, think that your investment in those tiny children that God has entrusted to you will be wasted. The ones to whom God has given into your care and all of those little tiny things that you do to point them to Christ. Do not despise the power of the ordinary. Do not despise the power of grace-filled, God-ordained child-rearing. Culture always says this. Culture always says children are so much trouble. Is there a way to just call the herd? God says through your faithfulness. Just in small parental care, small instruction, I'll do the extraordinary things. Though born under a death sentence, God delivers his people. God brings victory over evil through providence and finally in Christ. Take a look at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. She, she called him Moshe, which in, which in Egyptian sounds like son, but she's kind of making a cute play on words with the Hebrew people. It, it also sounds like to draw out. She has both of those in mind. Her friends probably thought that was cute. He's a son. Yeah, you you drew him out of the water. But God has so much more in mind. This is the son who will draw his people out of the sea of bondage. God will deliver his sons, all his sons and daughters from slavery. Through this man. A son whose name matches his destiny. Many of you know that the Gospel of Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. So you need to know that every Jew who picked up Matthew's Gospel and and read it would have recognized the significance. Oh, we've seen this story before. A son known by his parents to be special, is given a name that that matches his destiny. Matthew 1, 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3 tells us that Moses is... Only lesser to another son. 
whose name is Jesus. And like Moses, the son was born under a death sentence. As King Herod, no less evil than Pharaoh, sought to kill every male child two years and younger. Now when we continue on in our study of Exodus, when we get to Exodus chapter 4, God's going to begin to refer to the nation of Israel as His Son. And then throughout the Old Testament, God talks about the nation of Israel as His firstborn Son. And He says, I I called you out of bondage in Egypt. And Matthew picks that up. Matthew 2.15, He says, Out of Egypt I called My Son. That's why Jesus, when he was born under a death sentence, was made to flee down into Egypt so that he who is God's true son, his only begotten son, saves, not by calling you out of the Egypt of your sin, but by going right down into the Egypt of your sin. From Egypt... God calls His Son. It's a reminder of the incarnation of God. Baby Moses, a son born under a death sentence, saved by water and God's evident Spirit, points us to the true Son. Christ who saves through the cleansing waters of His blood and by His Holy Spirit. Physical reminders of spiritual realities. Why was Jesus, like Moses, born under a death sentence? So that he could save God's people who were born under a death sentence. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, Exodus chapter 2 in very profound ways, says, hold tightly to Christ. He alone delivers God's people. And all of those images are illustrated in the sacrament of baptism that we just saw and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we will now come and take. Let's pray.